Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before we dive back in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that these episodes may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behavior at real crime scenes. And there are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Now, I know many of you are shocked by what you've been hearing about the trial. Well, every part of this case, really, as I have been. And I really appreciate each of you taking the time to message me. So please keep on doing that. And I just wanted to say something about the horrific Sarah Everard case in the UK. It's really been on my mind a lot. And many of you have been asking me about my thoughts on the case. Now, present day, I can't say too much about the case itself because Wayne Cousins, a serving Metropolitan Police Officer, has been formally charged with Sarah's murder. But for those who don't know about the case, 33-year-old Sarah disappeared on the 3rd of March at around 9.30pm as she walked home from a friend's house through Clapham. Now, I know this area extremely well, having lived in this part of London. I used to train on Clapham Common at least four times a week. I've walked across the Common many times. I know the exact area. It feels very local to me. And I've been watching this case unfold with horror. And I did post about Sarah's disappearance early on, asking people to help if they'd witnessed anything. It was when she was still a missing person and a few local people who I know asked me to put it on my platforms, which I did. And I didn't have a good feeling about this case at all. 
Now, days after Sarah disappeared, the Metropolitan Police Service were doing house-to-house inquiries asking whether people had seen anything, which is fairly standard in a case like this. However, they also gave advice warning women to be careful and not to go out alone after dark. And they issued a public statement telling women not to go out alone after dark. Now, that incensed many people, including me. I was told about this and I felt really angry. You see, 40 years on from PS, the same messages are being given to women as if it's our safety issue to manage. And it's not. The problem is malviolence against women and police should not be shrinking women's worlds down anymore. You see how easy it is to focus on women's behaviours and rather than focusing on the problem, it gets projected onto women and saying, well, if you do A, B and C as if that will keep you safe. Well, we know that abuse and violence happens at all hours of the day and night to women. It's a misnomer to say stay home as if this will stop the problem. Also, 78% of 1,425 women were murdered in the home between 2009 and 2018, according to Counting Dead Women and the Femicide Census. So where are women safe? If you focus on male violence, if you curfew and restrict men's movements, as I've talked about with Julie Bindle in episode eight, then you start to deal with the problem. And perhaps when men's behaviour is restricted, perhaps then we start to get somewhere. Because as it stands, 52% of the population do not feel safe going out jogging after dark. That's 52% of the population. Women are already restricted. We have to change and modify our behavior all the time, as I've talked about, that we move around the world in a very different way. We risk assess absolutely everything. It's high time the government acted and showed some leadership and focused on the perpetrators. And we need to change the conversation 40 years on. Women are tired and angry. We want to feel safe. We don't want men to harass us on the street. And it happens to most women. And a recent survey showed 97% of young girls have also experienced street harassment and sexual harassment. We don't want men to follow us as we walk home and quicken their pace as we quicken ours, our hearts in our mouth and key clasped tightly in our hand, sticking it out as a weapon just in case we're grabbed. That's exactly why I'm pushing government to accept Amendment 73 in the Domestic Abuse Bill, which was debated again on Monday the 15th of March at report stage. This has been 20 years in the making for me, 20 years worth of work. This amendment would ensure police, probation and prison services proactively identify, assess and manage serial and high-risk domestic abusers and stalkers across England and Wales. We know stalking and domestic abuse are patterned behaviours. It's rarely a one-off. And this pattern must be identified and picked up earlier, as I've said continuously throughout this podcast series on PS. And I'm also calling for a perpetrator strategy. For too long, this has been framed as women's issues or violence against women and girls, as if we do it to ourselves. I've always had a problem with that. This framing, which leaves out the actor, lays the problem firmly and squarely on women. And it's wrong. It implies that we have to do something about it and we are told to modify, adapt or change our behaviour. And we know focusing on changing women's behaviour doesn't work. And we've had enough of doing the heavy lifting to solve this when we know that 97% of murderers are men, 90% of sexual offences are committed by men, 93% of domestic abusers are men, 70% of stalkers are men. The problem is male violence 
and we have to name it and identify it and tackle it. And I'm sorry if that hurts some people's feelings, but this isn't about feelings. This is about safety and this is about women's lives. You see, we have to change the conversation and focus on the problem. And there have been many homicide review reports highlighting that nothing is being done to tackle violent and abusive men. And we must make them visible and accountable. It's enough men who are doing it, and that makes it a problem for all men and all women. We should all be asking the question, well, how do we stop him? Rather than why doesn't she leave? Or why was she out at 9.30pm? We need good men to step up and show leadership. And I know there are more good men in this world, but many of you are silent. And when you're silent, you collude with the abusers, the rapists and the killers. So please step up and hold other men to account. This really isn't for women to fix. Male violence is everybody's business. It takes all men to fix it because it affects all women. And we've had enough. And we don't want more reports or consultations or recommendations. We want action to protect women and girls from male violence. And I've been so busy this week writing briefings to support the debate, posting a lot of campaign material and the stats and data on social media. And I've been thinking a lot about Sarah. So that's the jumping off point for today. You see, this all interconnects. As 40 years ago, women were told to stay home, don't go out after dark, just as women were told in Clapham after Sarah's disappearance. It's just not good enough. And so it's important that I join it all together. That's what a good crime analyst does. So I'm thinking about Sarah Everard, and I'm thinking about her family and friends at this time. Hashtag her name was Sarah Everard. And let's hope real change starts to happen. And it takes every one of us, every single one of us. Okay, so let's jump back into the case. You'll recall that I left off in episode 10, with P.S. having given evidence, and Dr. Hugo Milne, who followed on after him. Well, one last thing I want to circle back to, which relates to something that P.S. said when he was pushed by Sir Michael Havers QC about having, and I quote, in inverted commas, sexual relations with Helen Richter. Now, I know I mentioned this before, but it really got under my skin that he said sexual relations and thereafter referred to it as sexual intercourse and not rape. So I wanted to add that I could understand this in a police interview when you're trying to show tactical empathy to the perpetrator in order to get them to open up and tell you about what they did. But there's really no place for this language in court, in my opinion. I said this before, but I'm saying it again as it has relevance throughout the trial and each witness being questioned and their testimony. Saying sex rather than rape is exactly how rape gets normalised. Language really matters. Sex is consensual. Helen was in no position to consent. Her head had been stoved in with a hammer. A prosecuting lawyer, when cross-examining a defendant in court, should never minimise or downplay the perpetrator's actions or behaviours towards a victim. Maybe it happens at a subconscious level. I know that can happen too. But it's a point for all of us to really think about the choice of words, to think about our language. And another point I want to circle back to relates to many of your comments regarding A, how creeped out you were by what PS was wearing, his rape kill kit, the V-neck. And yes, it's extremely odious and sinister and all your creepometers should have been tweaking that's right, we all have a creepometer and we should listen to it. It connects to our gut instinct. It's the thing that keeps us safe. It's the thing that tells us there's a problem. And just picking up on some of your messages, I know that many of you are perplexed as to why the police didn't enter his rape kill kit into evidence. 
Well, I have to say that I am too. My own opinion on this is that due to the fact that it was a breach of process, they most likely didn't want that to be seen. They didn't want other people to know. Perhaps they weighed it up against the fact that they had the confession. He had, after all, confessed to 12 murders at that time, and so in their minds, perhaps they thought they had him banged to rights. Therefore, in the scheme of things, perhaps they deemed the close to be not so important. Also, if they notified senior officers, it may have undermined the confession, and perhaps they thought the Crown Prosecution Service would not be able to use it as evidence due to the breach. Now, of course, that's just my opinion. Only they know really why they took that decision. However, what I will tell you is that having taken advice from a very experienced QC who has yet to lose a murder trial, I was told that if they had entered PS's clothes into evidence, yes, it would have led to some uncomfortable questioning. However, that wouldn't have been insurmountable and it was really important evidence to adduce. It would have been extremely useful in that it talked to motive and that was key in this case, as you'll hear. However, they didn't know that at the time. And it goes without saying that those processes and procedures are in place for a reason. And this just highlights exactly how an ad hoc decision like this can have major repercussions on a trial and the outcome of that trial. So bear that in mind throughout this episode. So let me tell you about Dr. Hugo Milne's testimony. Because Dr. Milne was a witness for the defence, James Chadwin QC asked Dr. Milne questions first off, and he started by asking him to list PS's symptoms, which he did. Now, he listed suspicion, an uncontrollable impulse and paranoia concerning prostitutes, the preoccupation with prostitutes to the extent of delusion, delusions of grandeur with special powers, hallucinations, depression, suicidal ideation, misidentification, psychotic detachment, lack of insight, drawing illogical conclusions from deductions, which he called schizophrenic thinking, religious delusion, him not believing anything was wrong with him and his over-controlled behaviour. Dr Milne opined that PS had more than enough symptoms to make up the diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Now, note that Dr Milne mentioned over-controlled behaviour and said that in PS's case it applied to his ability to remain completely calm in the most stressful situation, such as giving evidence, P.S. had also been completely calm during interviews and questioning by the police and by doctors. So Dr. Milne said this, He always showed a tremendous degree of control, which to my mind was to an abnormal degree. So he cites an abnormal degree. And yes, he's spot on there. He showed that too at the crime scenes, remember. Now, in episode 10, I queried a number of things, including whether Dr. Milne had access to external sources of information, as well as interviewing PS, and whether Dr. Milne was cognizant of PS simulating symptoms. Well, he stated that he was during his testimony, but he also stated that he didn't think this to be the case, i.e. that PS was not simulating symptoms. In fact, he said that he thought PS had been suffering from paranoid schizophrenia since when he was about 19 to 20 years old, since the date of the primary experience in Bingley. The young Sutcliffe worked for a year as a gravedigger at the Victorian Cemetery in Bingley. In later conversations with defence psychiatrists, he claimed that his killing career was inspired here, when he heard the voice of God instructing him to rid the streets of prostitutes. Well, that again is what P.S. told him, of course. 
Dr. Milne said that since his interviews, he had seen PS four times, three of them after the trial began. And he said that each time PS was, and I quote, quite pleased to be seen, affable, pleasant, and extremely controlled. James Chadwin QC asked him if he had said to PS that if he was found mentally abnormal, he would have been kept in custody for 10 years to satisfy the public. Dr. Milne replied that he had not. He followed up with whether Dr. Milne thought PS would kill again, and he replied yes. The next answer was particularly enlightening when James Chadwin QC asked Dr. Milne whether he regarded PS to be dangerous, and Dr. Milne said this, not dangerous, extremely dangerous. Well, the next day, Harry Ognall QC cross-examined Dr. Milne on behalf of the prosecution. Harry Ognall QC made the point that Sonia was diagnosed with suffering from schizophrenia in 1972 and claimed to hear voices, and that she had grandiose ideas, the delusion that she was Christ, and that P.S. also had grandiose ideas, that he was in conversation with the Almighty and Jesus. And Dr. Milne agreed. Mr. Ognall said, Prisoner officers have told us that six days before you first saw P.S., he had said to Sonia this, I'm going to do a long time in prison, 30 years or more, unless I can convince people here that I'm mad. Then I'll do 10 years in the loony bin. Again, his words. He asked Dr. Milne what he thought about that in the context of his evidence. And Dr. Milne replied this, I think it's a very straightforward decision to make. Is this man pretending to be mad and has duped me and my colleagues, or am I, from my clinical examination, right in saying that he is a paranoid schizophrenic? As far as I can see, either he is a competent actor or I'm an inefficient psychiatrist. The judge, Mr Justice Borum, interjected at this point, and he said, this is not for any of us to decide, it's for the jury. Dr Milne then responded, perhaps I've been duped. It's for the jury to decide. Well, that really got to the heart of the matter, in my opinion. That's exactly what the jury had to determine. And rather oddly, now the burden was on the defence to prove diminished responsibility, the illness being paranoid schizophrenia. Mr Ognall QC continued and said that PS had not showed any signs of mental illness to family, friends and work colleagues. And Dr Milne agreed. Now again, this is an important point, as you would expect others to attest to odd behaviour prior to and during the 12 years that women were being attacked, so from 1969 to 1981 at least. People always talk about five or six years in this case, but they're wrong. PS was offending for much longer, and I know that to be true of most serial perpetrators. It's a pattern of behaviour, which is what I keep saying, and what we know of their offending behaviour is only ever the tip of the iceberg. It's exactly why I'm calling on the government in the UK to ensure a proactive identification assessment and management of serial stalkers and domestic abusers by police, prison and probation services across the country. We have to ensure greater protections for women and children from these men. And what else became apparent at the trial was that PS was above average IQ, as revealed by Dr Milne, who said that he was between 108 to 110. Now, the average is around 90 to 100, he told the court. So PS was clearly not a genius, but the doctor had to concede that he was indeed an intelligent lorry driver. Harry Ognall QC made the point that the attacks were premeditated and Dr Milne said that PS could still be suffering paranoid schizophrenia and plan the attacks. Harry Ognall QC persisted 
and countered by stating that P.S. had come up with various reasons for killing the women, not just that it was a divine mission. Still, Dr. Milne had no issue with that and said that he was predisposed to paranoid schizophrenia. Now, the next couple of points are instructive and again get to the heart of the matter, in my opinion. Harry Ognall QC asked Dr. Milne whether P.S. had told him about the 1969 attack on the unnamed prostitute, and Dr. Milne said that he had not. Harry Ognall QC said that he could not then say that P.S. had been honest with him and had not withheld evidence. Dr. Milne agreed and said that if P.S. could lie to the police, then he could lie to him. However, Dr. Milne went on to say that he didn't think P.S. had willfully misled him. Hmm, well, that's somewhat baffling to me, I have to say. To me, it's a lie of omission, and an important one, in my opinion. So I'm not sure why Dr. Milne felt that he was not being willfully misled by P.S. I mean, most of us want to believe the best in people, but this seems a stretch to me. And additionally, Harry Ognall QC pushed Dr. Milne for some time about the fact that Dr. Milne had opined in his report that there was no sexual aspect to P.S.'s behaviour. Harry Ognall QC queried this in light of the three stab wounds to Josephine Whitaker's vagina, and Dr. Milne reiterated that P.S. was not a sexual killer. Harry Ognall QC grew more indignant referring to the pathologist's report and the seven-inch sharpened screwdriver that was used to cause three very deliberate and precise stab wounds to Josephine's vagina and the fact that P.S. had gone back into the same wounds repeatedly. Harry Ognall QC said that it was done for sexual satisfaction Dr. Milne disagreed and said it may well have been accidental. Now, just for clarity, the pathologist in his report had opined the exact opposite, that it was deliberate and intentional, as he was the doctor who performed the autopsy on Josephine. And at this point, Judge Borum interjected again and restated this. Dr. Milne agreed to withdraw his observation that it was accidental. Now, again, that's quite astounding to me. How could he possibly opine that it was accidental when A, this wasn't his area of expertise, he's not a pathologist, B, he didn't examine Josephine, C, he knew nothing about this before and is learning this fact for the first time, D, it's clear to me he hadn't read the police or autopsy reports, and E, he appears to be thinking on his feet and reacting, perhaps more in the interests of self-preservation here rather than anything else, namely to defend his conclusion that P.S. was not a sexual killer. Harry Ognall QC continued. He asked, what else could this act have been other than sexual? And Dr. Milne finally conceded and said, I do not think that it could have been anything other than sexual. I mean, I wasn't in court, but this is like pulling teeth. Harry Ognall QC said it was not the only sexual behaviour either, and he asked Dr. Milne whether P.S. had told him that there was no sexual element to the attacks. Dr. Milne confirmed that P.S. had told him that there weren't sexual elements to the crimes. Hmm. Now, can you see the issue here? A psychiatrist being solely reliant on what a serial killer is telling him and not checking the facts of the case or corroborating anything. It's highly dangerous and unprofessional, as I said before in the last episode. Equally, if what P.S. was wearing the night he was arrested had been entered into evidence, this wouldn't have even been up for debate. And the sexual motive, quite frankly, would have trumped the whole divine mission to kill prostitutes narrative, which was quite frankly a home goal by the police. Dr. Milne had to admit 
that he'd been deceived, but went on to explain that perhaps it was because P.S. didn't want him to think badly of him and that he did not consider P.S. to be a sexual sadist. Good Lord, give me strength at this point. You see, what's obvious was that he'd been lied to and manipulated by P.S., and he'd formed a diagnosis on the basis of those lies, and he'd missed the very motivation of why P.S. was killing women. Harry Ognall QC returned to it and mentioned that P.S. stabbing Josephine's breast, pushing the piece of wood against Emily's vagina and scratching her buttocks, the fact that what he had called sexual intercourse with Helen Richter, again, he should have used the word rape here, so no one has any doubt, and he asked whether, and I quote, this was a sexual component, and Dr. Milne said yes, but they were not abnormal acts. Harry Ognall grew more indignant and repeated what P.S. did to Helen Richter. He said that he hit her over the head, then had sex, which is rape. So he raped her and then said that she didn't put too much into it. Dr. Milne said it was not normal, but, and I quote, I still think that this was use of sexual behaviour for entirely the wrong reason. To avoid detection, quieten her and get away. Harry Ognall QC challenged him again and asked why he would have to have sexual intercourse, he means rape, to keep her quiet. And Dr. Milne simply answered, because that's what she expected. This is simply staggering at this point, and I'm lost beyond words reading this interaction. You see, it's obvious to me whose account Dr. Milne is heavily invested in, And without the word rape being used and it being crystal clear that P.S. had bashed Helen over the head with a hammer and she was lying there dying and so she could not consent, it allows this doctor to continue with this bizarre line of thinking which illustrates perfectly that he had bought hook, line and sinker what P.S. was selling. Harry Ognall QC said that the last six women that P.S. attacked were not prostitutes. Dr. Milne said that if P.S. knew some of the women were not prostitutes and he attacked them knowingly, then the diagnosis would fall. Harry Ognall QC pressed him further and said, he would be a murderer then, and Dr. Milne replied yes. Just to be clear here, only five of the women were prostitutes. Nineteen were not. So there's that. And I hope you've managed to stay with me across these interactions because they are important. And Dr. Milne did conclude his testimony by saying, having diagnosed P.S. as a paranoid schizophrenic, he did believe that P.S. fell into the category of diminished responsibility. Now, that's just mind-blowing to me, really. I have to say, I'm sure it is to you. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Dr. Malcolm McCulloch, a consultant psychiatrist and medical director at the Park Lane Special Hospital in Liverpool, gave evidence next. Now, he had interviewed PS three times in Armley Jail in Leeds. His first interview lasted 50 minutes, and he said that within 30 minutes he knew that P.S. was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia. Dr. McCulloch explained that P.S. presented with numerous symptoms, and he listed eight of them. He said he reached this conclusion very quickly when P.S. said that he could read the victim's thoughts. When James Chadwin QC asked Dr. McCulloch to explain further what he meant, he said that although Josephine Whitaker had told him that she had come from her grandparents' house, P.S. knew that she was lying and that she was a prostitute. Dr. McCulloch opined that he was an extremely dangerous man. Dr. McCulloch also said that there was nothing in P.S.'s history to suggest a personality disorder such as was often linked to a sadistic killer. Therefore, he opined that P.S. was not a sexual deviant. Harry Ognall QC cross-examined him next and asked, what would one have to do to be deemed a sexual deviant? Dr. McCulloch replied that a man would have to derive pleasure or sexual arousal from his behaviour or fantasies. He stated that he had found no such evidence of that in P.S. Harry Ognall QC held up the screwdriver and again explained in graphic detail what P.S. did to Josephine Whitaker. And Dr. McCulloch still said that he was not a sexual deviant. Harry Ognall QC asked him when he was made aware of the Crown's case and he replied April the 28th. He then asked Dr. McCulloch whether he knew of the nature of the Crown's case. Dr. McCulloch conceded that he did not and that he was reliant on examining P.S.'s mental state and history. Dr. McCulloch conceded that he did not make any inquiries of P.S.'s family, friends, workmates or general practitioner. Harry Ognall QC asked him whether he had read the police interview and P.S.'s confession. Dr. McCulloch replied that he had not, and he followed up by saying that the police interview was different from a psychiatrist interview. Judge Boreham once again interjected, he explained that P.S. gave a voluntary statement where he could write down exactly what he wanted. The judge asked whether Dr. McCulloch thought it might be prudent to read that before he made his mind up. Dr. McCulloch said yes, that it would have been wise, and that he did not do that in this case. Good Lord, what a state of affairs. So let's just recap here. Dr. McCulloch makes his diagnosis within 30 minutes of meeting P.S., and the police spend Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday interviewing P.S., and he didn't think he should read the voluntary confession statement by P.S. I don't really know what to say about that. These so-called experts are there to give an expert opinion on such important matters with very little preparation and external source material. It's deeply unsettling and disturbing to me, not to mention somewhat arrogant. And I have to say, it makes my blood run cold, quite frankly, particularly when I think about how manipulative and plausible some of the perpetrators can be. I mean, 
We're not talking about crimes where they stole a loaf of bread. I can't fathom why, for the life of me, they wouldn't request the case file. These are power and control crimes, and it seems to me that they totally miss the mark here. Those seeking power and control manipulate professionals too. I always say in my work and when I'm training professionals, do you really know who you're dealing with? You have to work from that basis and scrutinise everything. I mean, at least 13 women were dead and at least seven others had been seriously harmed. It doesn't get more serious than that. But thank goodness for Harry Ognall QC and the judge. The cross-examination was thorough and unrelenting as it should be. I just wish the clothing had been entered into evidence by the police. It would have saved an awful lot of time, as this trial was unnecessarily centred on PS's motivation and the psychiatrist's evaluation, or lack thereof, more than anything else, when it was plain as day to me what his motivation was. Now, I said before that the trial went on for two weeks. Well, that's not strictly true. After Dr. McCulloch's evidence, the court was adjourned for the weekend. But on Monday the 18th of May, Dr. McCulloch was recalled to the stand and there was one last witness that the defence would call after Harry Ognall asked his final question of Dr. McCulloch. Harry Ognall QC's question was whether Dr. McCulloch thought P.S. had deceived him in any way. The doctor conceded that P.S. did, but he said that he could not determine whether P.S. was a liar. Now again, I find that somewhat puzzling. People can get caught in the commission of a lie, but there's also the omission, the leaving out of key information intentionally. Yes, I can accept that we can all forget certain details across time, but come on, sexually assaulting and raping multiple women is not something that one might easily forget, in my opinion. Harry Ognall QC stated that Dr. McCulloch's diagnosis stood or fell on what PS told him, and he said that that was the beginning and end of it. Dr. McCulloch wouldn't agree to that, and Judge Borum interjected once more and asked the doctor, if what PS had told you was not true, what is your diagnosis? Dr. McCulloch replied, it falls. Judge Borum followed up by asking Dr. McCulloch that if PS knew that the last victims were not prostitutes, would he still diagnose him with paranoid schizophrenia? And Dr. McCulloch replied yes, but said that it would be murder. Hmm, very interesting and also very damning. The whole of the defence's case rested on this diagnosis based on the fact that PS had told the psychiatrist that he was targeting prostitutes. And perhaps the penny was just dropping for the psychiatrist who had diagnosed PS in just 30 minutes. You see, they were quick to diagnose without the full facts and not even knowing anything about the victims. As I always say, the victimology is always crucial and it should always be the starting point. The victim holds up a mirror to the perpetrator and their decision-making. And as I've said before, most of the women that PS targeted were not prostitutes. Therefore, it leads me to opine that these two eminent psychiatrists must have believed PS's version of events and what they read in the media. Remember PS's defence narrative tallied with what was in the media and what the police were initially saying. Therefore, what I call professional curiosity to question and test the narrative and test the evidence appears to be lacking. You now also understand what an important role the media play in these cases, and that bizarrely some professionals believe what they read.
It also talks to me about how manipulative and convincing, as well as controlling, PS must have been. And I'm gathering all of this information together for a later episode profiling PS, and you may wish to make some notes too, because you should be doing the same. Now, the final witness for the defence was Dr. Terence Kay, a consultant forensic psychiatrist whose day-to-day work involves examining prisoners at Leeds and Wakefield prisons. Dr. Kay had originally been engaged by the Crown to examine P.S. Dr. Kay interviewed P.S. on eight occasions, four of them before he had submitted an interim report on April the 9th, and he'd compiled a final report eight days later. The first interview took place on March the 4th, where he took a psychiatric history about P.S., including his early development and work history. Dr. Kay opined that P.S. was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia, but that he was uneasy about other factors. He explained that he had a good working relationship with the prison officers and that they believed that P.S. was faking it. He was concerned about that, he said, because they spent a lot more time with him than he did. In fact, the prison officers were with him 24-7, and so it's a really important point and a significant learning point for all professionals. The prison officers are observing the prisoners all the time, not just in a clinical setting, when they're no doubt on their best behaviour. Mr Chadwin QC asked Dr K if PS was not schizophrenic, what was he? Dr K replied, if he's not schizophrenic, only a psychopath would kill this many people and the origins of that must be sexual. Well, isn't that interesting? Right there, I believe that he hit the nail on the head. But perhaps he missed the mark. Again, this further underlines exactly how important it was for the sexual behaviours and aspects of this case to be disclosed and the V-neck jumper to be entered into evidence. Now, I know I keep going on about it, but it's so important. There are so many learning opportunities with this case. And Dr K also said some other interesting things that PS had told him. PS had told him that he got depressed and Dr K asked him why and he said that he and Sonia argued and that on two or three occasions he'd packed his bags and that she'd also had a mental breakdown. He told the doctor that Sonia had an obsession with cleanliness and that there was hell to pay if he'd entered the house with boots on and that he had to wash his own clothes. So there's a little bit of insight into their relationship. Of course, if you can believe PS's account... It really doesn't sound too devilish to me in terms of behaviour, but that's me. I mean, men have killed women for far less. And yet again, we seem to have a man passing the buck and responsibility onto a woman. And of course, some in the media ran with that. They ran with that narrative about Sonia. More on this in a later episode. Now, I'm not going to rehearse the rest of his testimony because it's going over old ground of the two other psychiatrists. And once more, it's glaringly obvious to me and to the court, I believe, that PS gave a heavily edited, inaccurate and sanitised account of what he did to Dr K. Now, here's a specific example of what I mean. When Dr K asked PS where he had stabbed the women, PS said that he, and I quote, gave it to them in the back and once or twice in the heart or throat. Dr. K also asked, what about suffering? And P.S. replied, never thought about it. When Dr. K asked whether P.S. had stabbed them below the belt, P.S. didn't answer him. Again, the commission of a lie can be active, but it can also be through the omission. I believe that P.S. was quite careful with his narrative. He was intentionally very careful to avoid being caught in a lie. 
Now, again, if the doctors had read all the case papers, including the autopsy report, they wouldn't have to rely on PS's self-report alone, and they may well have reached a very different diagnosis and conclusion. I've said it before, and it's worth repeating. Do the basics right, and the rest will follow. And so it was that the closing speeches began on Tuesday the 19th of May and continued to Wednesday the 20th of May. Judge Borum's summing up began Wednesday afternoon and continued until the Thursday. Now I'm going to go through just some of the highlights, the things that stood out to me from the closing speeches, and I'll start off with Sir Michael Haver's QC. I think the main point that was well made was going back through the evidence adduced in the case and underlining to the jury that they would have to weigh the medical evidence against the known facts of the case. The known facts of the case, Sir Michael Haver's QC said, were not in dispute. He also made the point that some mention had been made of PS and in inverted commas having trouble at home, that his wife Sonia had been ill, her obsession with cleanliness him having to take his shoes off when he entered the house and do his own washing. And he queried whether this was reason enough for his behaviour. So Michael Havers QC stated that Dr Milne had believed everything PS told him, but had to concede when questioned that PS had deceived him. He also made an interesting point, which was this. If PS had truly heard a voice that he thought was God, and if he really thought it was such a joyous moment, which is what he said... Why didn't he tell his mother or his fiance about it? He called attention to the fact that there was no one who could corroborate this, namely because it didn't happen, Sir Michael Havers QC said, and that he wanted to go to a loony bin, his words, for 10 years rather than prison for 30 years. Sir Michael Havers QC concluded by speaking directly to the jury and said this, You're going to have to ask yourself how much you believe of what PS said. It's the doctor's belief in what he said about Bingley, the voice of God and the mission which leads them to their diagnosis. If you do not believe that he's telling the truth, then the doctor's diagnosis collapses. If you're not satisfied that he did hear voices of God or that he did have a mission, that's an end to it. James Chadwin QC started his closing speech on the afternoon of Tuesday the 19th of May and he ran over until the next day on the Wednesday. He began by saying that unusually his job was to prove the defence's case of diminished responsibility. And of course he was right. The rest of what he said was a lot of words to effectively say the following, and I quote, I'm trying to persuade you that what PS did suffer from at the time was a disease of the mind called paranoid schizophrenia, and that it was up to the jury to decide whether PS had, in inverted commas, deliberately manufactured material in a clear and calculated way to deceive three experienced forensic psychiatrists. And that really was the long and short of the defence's closing speech. Next came Judge Borum's summary. He gave many reminders of evidence adduced from both sides, including quotes from PS's confession statement and testimony. He boiled it down to this. The point at issue was reasonably simple. Did PS lie to the police in order to divert them from his mission? Or did he lie to the doctors in order to persuade them he was mad? And one important standout point that he did make was this. Dr Hugo Milne had agreed that, all in all, there was nothing that the defendant PS had told him that he didn't accept. Hmm, interesting. 
I still cannot fathom why such an experienced psychiatrist would believe absolutely everything he was being told and why he wouldn't test it and request the case file. But sadly, I've seen this in many cases. This really isn't unique, which is why there are so many learning points in this case that I'm trying to highlight. Judge Borum then told the jury to keep an open mind until his final remarks, which he gave the next day on Friday the 22nd of May. Now, in his final remarks, Judge Borum said that the jury would effectively have to decide whether P.S. was mad or bad, i.e. was P.S. acting due to some abnormality of mind at the time. And at 10.21am, he sent the jury out to deliberate. At 3.38pm, the jury returned and said they couldn't reach a unanimous verdict, the judge told them that he would accept a majority. And so it was that some five hours and 55 minutes later, since they had been sent out that morning, that they returned with a verdict. The Old Bailey jury did not believe him. On the 22nd of May, 1981, the jury delivered its majority verdict. It was bad, not mad. Guilty of 13 murders and seven attempted murders. Sonia Sutcliffe's husband received 20 life sentences. And the recriminations began. Guilty, guilty, guilty on all counts by a 10 to 2 majority. Bravo! Great news, the right outcome, the right decision. And in sentencing P.S., Judge Borum turned to the doc and said, and I quote, The jury have found you guilty of 13 charges of murder, and I may say so, murder of a very cowardly quality. It is difficult to find words that are adequate in my judgment to describe the brutality and the gravity of these offences. And I say at once I'm not going to pause to seek those words. I'm prepared to let the catalogue of your crimes speak for itself. He went on and said that he had no doubt P.S. was a very dangerous man and that due to that he would recommend he serve 30 years before his release should be considered. For the seven attempted murders that P.S. had admitted, he was also given life sentences. Judge Borum commended the West Yorkshire Police Investigation Team, the R-Squad as he called them, and in particular he commended Sergeant Desmond O'Boyle, Sergeant Peter Smith, and Detective Inspector John Boyle. These were officers who he said, and I'm quoting, officers who behaved immaculately and didn't put a foot wrong. Hmm. Well, that's not strictly true. But of course, the judge wasn't to know everything behind the scenes. And he also praised Sergeant Robert Ring and PC Robert Hydes of the South Yorkshire Police, who had detained PS. With regards to West Yorkshire Police, Judge Borum said this, I am sure every sensible member of the public feels the greatest sympathy for them for this reason, if no other, that the scent was falsified by a cynical, almost inhuman hoaxer. I refer to the tape and the letters. I express the hope that one day he may be exposed. Hmm. Again, perhaps many of us see the case completely differently now, but of course the judge can only base his observations on what was put before him at the time. Now let me end by sharing with you what Chief Constable Gregory said when he heard the verdict. He said that P.S. had been, and I quote, extremely lucky and very clever. And he added, the truth is that we never had sufficient evidence to charge P.S. 
He was interviewed several times at home. His wife gave him alibis and nothing was found in his garage or car. He had never been among the 60 top suspects, he said. Good Lord again, I seem to say that a lot. I wonder how you all feel about that. Hit me up on social media and let me know. And P.S. was found guilty, of course. The right outcome, thank goodness, as he was, as Judge Borum said, a very dangerous man. But the means of travel to get to this guilty verdict could have been very different, and many women's lives, importantly, could have been saved. This is a case that really just has so many twists and turns and jaw-dropping moments. I'm uncovering so many things that I just didn't know about before, and there's still so much more to discuss, including analysing other potential offences, the Byford report, the hoaxer, and then there's all the learning and the police culture and the media and what was going on with some of the key people leading this investigation. So I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell for next week for episode 12 of The Forgotten Victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Harfoga Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrood.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.